Oh, ah, there he is. Okay. <laughs> I can hear that. That's good. Let me turn me down so it doesn't overdrive. It's still doing it. There we go. Okay, that's a little better. I'm playing uh, um, uh, Life on Mars in in uh, Swedish. But you can't hear it. Wait, maybe you can hear this. Really? You hear it? Are you still there? Yeah. That's what I'm playing. Can you hear it? Yeah. 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 Uh, Live by Mars, Life on Mars by Anna Fried Lingstad. Okay. All right. Well, enough enough uh, uh, pre-show banter. Let's play the uh, intro and, and get going with uh, Chris O'Brien, who came screaming back from the Grand Canyon today, right, to be on the Indeed. show. Yeah. Yep. Which intro do you want, the original one, the It's Greg intro, or the anti-ETH intro? Uh, anti-ETH. Okay. <laughs> Here, I'll turn it up. I'll turn it up if so you I can, have a choice. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it up so you can hear it. Yeah, because I've never heard, heard it before. So really? I love the, the original. No, the, the whole extraterrestrial thing is not, uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, well conditioned here? Yes. Then it goes into the regular. Uh... Right. Opening, <laughs> but did you? Well, let's let it. Play. We don't have to let it play out. This is my show. Um, did you hear all that at the beginning there? I did. I heard the uh, the good doctor. Yeah. Who were the other voices? Um, the first one was John Keel saying the ex- extraterrestrial explanation is is not a good. It's not a good explanation for this. Right. Okay. Um, then Valet. Um, uh, then Mac Tony's saying that uh, I think this comes from a domain of pure information, uh, okay. and then um, William Burrow says, "Are we in a go condition here?" <laughs> <laughs> I think we are. <laughs> yeah, I think we're in a go condition here. Yes, um, that's recording. That's recording. You're there. Hello, Chris. Hey, it's been a while, Greg. Yeah, it's been Good a long be time. Yeah, yeah. I the, the last time I talked to you, I think was I either on Paracast or wasn't when I was visiting. Um, I think it's when you were visiting, and then you were on the Paracast just shortly before that. Oh, okay, that's right. Yeah, it was in October. I went to Monument Valley, and on the way there, I stopped in Arizona and visited uh, uh, Chris and Dave Childress at the uh, at the compound there. Yeah, the, the World Explorers Club. 
Yeah, the the thing was that the World Explorers Club Club is located in a in a house, and the only thing in that house is the World Explorers Club, and then you know a bedroom, and it's a regular house. So I had the entire house to myself, which was amazing. And then um, we had uh, I went went there on the way up to Monument Valley on the way back, and on the way back we had a a nice big barbecue one evening with Chris and Dave and Clifford Mahooty. Indeed. Um, which was nice. It was, it was fun. I, every time I see uh, Clifford, we have a really good talk, and it's and almost none of it's about UFOs and stuff. It's all about no. his life and the, the culture he's from and um, the medicine society he's in and weird stuff that's happened to him. And um, the funny thing is the only time I see him is when, I, when, he, when he's visiting with you or I, at the conference I saw him with you and, and we talk, and in between we don't say anything, and we're both perfectly fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, chief horn dog yes <laughs> that's what chris calls him yeah well that's how he gets introduced to um attractive vivacious women yeah i kind of <laughs> i put them on notice that this is chief horn dog and uh, uh uh be careful around him he's he's a force of nature <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's kimosabi i'm tonto Oh, okay. Oh, there we go. Now I've got all my commentary going up here. Good. Okay. Now I can see what people are saying, if, they, if indeed they say anything. Uh, go condition detected, says, says Steve. Thank you, Steve. Hey, Chris, what were you doing in the Grand Canyon just now? <clears throat> well, you know, I do, uh, I do guided tours up there, uh, private tours, and we have a bit of a spike around the holidays, so I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I've been fairly busy. Uh, I'm doing a UFO tour, actually, tomorrow night. Which should be interesting because it's going to be pretty darn cold out. Hopefully, these people aren't from Hawaii or someplace or Florida. <laughs> Why do you get uh, those and they freeze? Yeah, yeah. Well, last time I went out actually was in October, and um, I had four women from Beijing, four Chinese ladies. Um, got a chance to practice my hellos and goodbyes in uh, Mandarin. Yeah, and. Um, and we had uh, one of the better sightings that I've had here uh, since moving to Sedona uh, 12 years ago. Um, very compelling. Uh, interesting, complete with uh, what appeared to be a, a military helicopter that showed up shortly after the – well, actually at the tail end of the sighting event. And, uh, and then hung, hung around uh, where the, the two uh, lights that we saw, um, where they – had had appeared and and hovered um it looked like about eight miles maybe seven eight miles away from us from uh west of uh of sedona and then this uh as the lights kind of faded out there was a, a white one and an orange one uh pretty good sized uh probably oh i don't know maybe five or six times the brightness of uh of venus and the size of Venus uh, didn't appear to be too far away. Um, the white one came on first. It was about, oh, six degrees above the horizon uh, to the west and uh, about 830 at night. So it was uh, still completely, you know, it was completely dark. And, um, you know, I immediately alerted the ladies uh, and brought their attention to the light. And, and uh, as soon as they started looking, it divided into two. And, um, you know, it didn't... It, it kind of halved its brightness because there were now two lights. 
and it appeared literally to break into two. Um, and then as soon as the, the white light broke into two lights and, and they were kind of hovering side by side, about three or four degrees uh, to the right, um, a, about the same brightness of an orange light came on. And, um, and then in about, oh, it, it took about six seconds, maybe seven seconds, like, like uh, the first light um, before it divided into two. And oh boy, I tell you, these these ladies, they were. Uh, it made their entire vacation. <laughs> uh, they really uh, were quite impressed by this, and uh, and we watched uh, probably three or four minutes. Uh, the lights that went back together and became one bright white light and one bright orange light, and then right over our heads, uh, maybe a thousand feet up, not even. Uh, I guess it was a helicopter. We really couldn't hear it. It was like in a whisper mode. Uh, it didn't have that real loud, you know, rotors beating through the air sound. Uh, there was a little bit of that, but it was it was a very muffled sound. And it went directly to the place where the, uh, the lights uh, were. And as it approached, the lights went out. And they appeared to actually move away, directly away from us to the west. Because they, they got smaller and smaller um, fairly quickly within, I don't know, probably about seven, eight seconds. And then they, whatever the craft was, I mean, I really couldn't ID it as a helicopter. I assumed it was because it's, it hovered in that spot for about 15 minutes where the uh, the two lights um, had broken in, into four lights. And, and it just kind of hung there. It didn't get bigger. It didn't get smaller. And then it finally, after... I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. I, I didn't really time it. Uh, then it, it slowly started to head to the west. And uh, that was one of the better sightings that I've had at night uh, in the Sedona area. And so <laughs> these ladies got their money's worth. So you, what cool. you do is you take people on a UFO tour hoping that some, they're going to see something? Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe one one or two out of ten, you know, we'll see something that was uh, – Unusual, whether it's uh, fast-moving, uh, unblinking lights, uh, obviously that aren't satellites or this space station. Yeah. Um, so I've done maybe 30 UFO tours, 25, 30, and had probably a half a dozen events um, over you know about a four-year period. So about once every 10 uh, eight eight uh, sky watches. Something something interesting will happen, and of course, but most of the time that I spend with them is sort of breaking down and, and de-educating them, um, getting rid of all the popular misconceptions about the phenomenon, and um, and trying to um, you know kind of um, strip away the pop culture uh, misnomers and baggage. I, I really and, would like to hear what you say to them. I mean, I, I could probably tell what you say, but you, you could put it much better. I mean, what, what, what is your standard spiel? I mean, uh, when they say, well, have you seen any aliens out here? Do you go, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Stop with this aliens thing and then, you know. No, the first thing I say was, well, wait a minute. How do you know that we're not the aliens and they're more terrestrial than we are? <laughs> That's a stock answer for that. Yeah. Um, you know, basically, I just tell them, look, you... You're probably interested in this subject because uh, you've been watching these TV shows, uh, maybe reading some books, maybe you've had an experience. 
but um, you know there is you know the culture is not friendly um, user friendly when it comes to uh, any paranormal subjects um, we're front loaded with um, sensationalism um, there's all kinds of shortcuts that are taken by Hollywood and by the entertainment <laughs> uh, complex if you will and yeah. uh, and and they they basically uh, try to heighten the sensationalism and ratchet up the uh, the fear element and uh, and really don't deal with um, with with the facts uh, it's it's not a scenario that you could uh, refer to as being intellectually honest <laughs> and of course you know just by saying a, a paragraph like that I mean that immediately will you know you know there there will I will be flooded with questions well what do you mean about this what do you mean about that could, could you give us examples you know and, and I bring my laptop out there and you know, I have examples of, of uh, I just debunk. You know, the the standard 1950s, uh, you know, knee jerk sort of pop culture view of what the phenomenon is, and I show them what, you know, I show them the examples of what real um, anomalous aerial object uh, um, photographs and videos are, uh, at least real in my estimation, versus your nuts and bolts Billy Meyer beam ships and. Adamski uh, vacuum uh, cleaner uh, end caps and and uh, and that sort of thing and and, and I so I, I break down their their level of education and and then strip it away and then and then try to quickly build it up with with a more objective scientific um, a more objective scientific approach and and, and rationale uh, to explain um, you know what what are true foes. <laughs> and generally, you know, there's a plasma sheath around them. They're, um, you know, the quality of light is different. Um, you know, structured craft are um, rarely, you know, they're, they're generally not round. They're actually oct the octagonal. They're um, multi-sided um, because they're spinning. They appear round. I use a lot of uh, the information that I've learned from Ray Stanford and, you know, from others, um, in terms of of how to give them good sort of textbook examples of what is a pop culture sort of sensationalized view of this uh, of this particular phenomenon and then and then show them uh, you know what I consider to be more more uh, accurate uh, photographs videos that sort of thing so you know and I, I give them a, a sense of uh, frequency um, you know I've got my breakdown of when you're more more likely to see uh, have a have a sighting event, what days of the week, what months of the year, th that sort of thing, um, uh, and I apply that to the Sedona area. I give them a, a background of of sighting events and waves of activity in the Sedona area. Um, I, I give them an idea of. Occasionally, I'll even take them to uh, a couple of other sighting areas. I generally I generally stick to one because I don't really have enough time to to do too much tramping around, but. You know, if we've had reports from Bell Rock, let's say, or Castle Rock in, in the um, village of Oak Creek area, I'll, I'll zip through there real quick on the way out to uh, to where I, I generally uh, take them to Skywatch, which overlooks uh, the Bradshaw Ranch out to the west of town, which is where a majority of our sighting events, uh, I think, uh, you're more likely to see something out there than pretty much anywhere else. And, and I do explain to them, it's like ghost hunting at night. You know, why do you go hunt ghosts at night? Because it's a little quieter and it's spookier. It's the same with with uh, 
with sky watching and UFO hunting, uh, the best time to go is during the day. Uh, those are your best quality sightings uh, or daylight sightings. And, you know, at night it might be a little easier to spot something unusual. Um, it's, I think, more apparent to the eye. But it's also more difficult to then, um, you know, I think accurately identify a distance, size, speed, and, and, and those sorts of uh, parameters around deciding events. So, you know, I, I try to give them a crash course on how to properly ID uh, unusual uh, events in the in the night sky. Give them a crash course in some astronomy. Point out constellations. Um, I've figured out exactly almost to the minute when the satellites come over. The the four satellites that come over during the time period that I I'm uh, taking these people out. And of course, some of the other uh, tour companies who do uh, sighting <laughs> tours, you know, they'll they'll. They know when the satellites are coming too, so they'll make sure that everybody thinks that they're watching UFOs, and you'll hear them hooping and hollering and and stuff uh, being <laughs> taken uh, taken for a ride, which I I kind of frown on that. Yeah, uh, but, when um, you say when you say a real UFO, what do you think a real UFO is? Something that is physical and truly unexplained, or I I would figure. F- Knowing you, that it encompasses much more than that. Yeah, of course. Uh, something that is truly anomalous, that, that can't be explained by some sort of mundane, natural, or uh, man-made explanation. Something that uh, exhibits non-ballistic motion. Uh, generally, uh, objects that have plasma, um, you know, the, the ionization of, of air around them. Um, and, and, you know, different colors indicate, um, uh, generally indicate uh, states of motion, let's say. Uh, try to give them um, more of an idea that this is this is something that does exhibit um, science that um, generally in uh, in areas um, especially at night after sunset um, any sort of moisture in the air is going to be ionized by these objects so it's a pretty good uh, bet that you'll have some sort of ionization going on some electrical um, stimulation of, of moisture and air and you know try to just try to give them a, a basic sort of cliff notes version of some of the the apparent science that can be gleaned from from these objects of course a lot of this i've been very fortunate to uh you know have uh, you know many years of, of listening to ray explain uh different principles and um and and so that's that's given me i think a, a pretty good eye for you know something that's ordinary versus something that's uh, that's possibly extraordinary. So, uh, who else is ex- who who else has accepted Ray's um, research besides you? Uh, quite quite a number of uh, people out at Goddard Space Flight Center. Um, he's slowly uh, making the rounds of uh, some of the um, <laughs> rocket scientists. Yeah, are, are are slowly being turned on to his work. Uh, a couple of um, uh, well, one physicist who uh, used to work at SIR or SRI, SRI, yeah, SRI, a, a very well-known physicist who used to work out there in the seventies. Who well, I'm not supposed to say his name, but you know who I'm talking about. He's been there. John Alexander's been there. Uh, Jacques Vallée's uh, making noises of finally getting out there to see his his stuff. Uh, you know, based on what he's heard mm-hmm. from uh, from the physicist and from uh, from others, um, 
Ben Moss and Tony Angiola uh, from MUFON have uh, spent way more time uh, with Ray than I have, and they're just uh, gobsmacked by his work out there. James Fox spent the um, better part of two weeks with him and uh, got the full uh, the full treatment. Um, Ray's going to be in National Geographic in the magazine. Uh, his dinosaur trackway that he found out at Goddard Space Flight Center is being called by uh, the three top uh, dinosaur um, experts in the world as the most important paleontological find uh, ever in history. Uh, there's over 60 different tracks of dinosaurs and mammals. It's the first time mammals and dinosaurs have uh, laid tracks in the same uh, in the same <laughs> giant pile of dino dung, basically. Yeah. And uh, he, there's new species on there. There's a pterosaur track uh, with the back feet and the feet in the claws, uh, you know, on the wings, the claw feet, hands, um, and uh, the bill looking for grubs in the dino dung. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely the most uh, impressive trackway ever found, uh, paleo trackway. And uh, Martin Lockley, who is the world's top dinosaur track expert, and Robert Bacher, who uh, the Sam Neill character in Jurassic Park was modeled after Bacher, who was – he's the guy that's famous for coming up with the uh, with the revised view of dinos as being very um, um, almost hot-blooded in terms of being able to run very fast, not slow and plodding like Godzilla, but very active. Uh, it was his theory that uh, is now accepted as uh, – as uh, you know, as the reality, and uh, both Bacher and Lock Lockley say that this is probably the most important find ever in paleontology. Um, so National Geographic is going to do a an article on Ray, and you know it's funny when when you know Ray's uh, incredible dinosaur uh, track work. You know he's he's found thousands of tracks where millions of people have walked, and nobody noticed them but him. You know, how can somebody say that the guy doesn't have observational and visual, visual acuity that is off the scale for anything that he looks at? Just because it's dinosaurs, uh, he can look at a, a photograph of, uh, of, you know, aerial activity and, and, and show you incredible things in there that most people would totally miss, even even people that are trained to uh, to spot stuff. He, he just has a, an uncanny ability uh, to uh, observe and, um, and, and diagnose and um, uh, explain uh, certain properties that are leaving uh, behind evidence uh, in in the in trackways. Trackways in the sky or on the ground doesn't matter. Uh, you know, dinosaurs are his hobby. U uh, UFOs are his passion. And uh, you know, he's he's definitely going to be uh, <laughs> his work will be acknowledged at some point. He doesn't really care at this point. Well, he's, okay, he's I I hope it is because I. He won't release it to anybody, really, unless they come and look at it, um, which kind of makes people very suspicious of him. I would love to go see what he has there. It'd be great. He, he invited me to go well, see how come, it. But... How come it doesn't make people suspicious when a scientist won't release his evidence until he's published? No, I mean, no, no. See, but I see what he's doing. I think what it, you know, his method is, and you know, I, whatever people think of it, I don't care. But his method is: let's get, let me convince people that are that know what I'm talking about and that people would respect if they said I know what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah, he's not. He doesn't care if the public uh, what he's doing. The average person would look at it and go, "Well, I don't see what the big deal is." And it's only if you're, you know, if you have a working knowledge in optical physics and <laughs> magnetohydrodynamics, are you going to be able to understand what what you're looking at? 
I mean, it's pretty rarefied realms uh, that, uh, you know, the scientific uh, establishment operates in. And, and it's so, you know, it's so specialized that, um, you know, of course, he does have some some really impressive gee whiz, uh, you know, you know, just jaw dropping stuff. But but he doesn't care about that. He wants scientists to be turned on to the science. He doesn't care about all the other stuff about about uh, titillating people and and making little girls have uh, wet panties and 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 things like that. It's not what he's he's interested in. He's interested in furthering our knowledge and attempting to come up with a with a boiler, you know, a a well thought out um, approach to explain how these craft operate, the scientific properties that are that are at work and you know he's come up with uh, some pretty interesting hypotheses that have to do with with um, um, uh, ghost imaging uh, time compression these objects are moving extremely fast uh, they can they can travel many miles in in a 50th of a second and he's got really good films that demonstrate this they have incredibly strong gravitational fields he has uh, images of 22 sets of Faraday rings around one object. We, we can only barely produce two sets of Faraday rings. The amount of energy it would take to produce 22 is, is, is jaw-droppingly uh, large. Um, so he's, he doesn't really give a shit what people think. He, 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 you know, he doesn't care. Well, it, the, the, has he stopped? Has he stopped talking about it? Uh, to because in, in, a few years ago he was he was announcing this to people and saying, "Well, you have to come out here and look at it, and if only certain people can see it, because I'm just going to sit here and show it to everybody that comes through the door." Okay, I understand that. That's great. But at this point, I think he's probably you know, correct me if I'm wrong. He's probably just shut up and said, "You know what? I don't care what you think. I really don't. So I'm not going to talk about it Pretty anymore." Much. Okay. I have offered to go out there and document his entire presentation, which would be many hours yeah. on video, show the evidence, show him explaining the evidence, uh, so at least that there's a a version of his presentation, which is many hours long. It would probably be 10, 12 hours, um, so that the entire thing is captured for you know historical purposes. Yeah, you and, should um, do that. Yeah, well, I've offered to do it, and you know he's just... He's doing this paper with Martin Lockley, you know, uh, on the Goddard find that um, has to be done before they can uh, they can officially uh, unveil it at the new uh, Space Flight Center building out there in College Park. So he's really been under the gun to get that done. And and as soon as that's done, then uh, he'll probably start uh, making noises about getting me out there and and um, so that I can go ahead and document his, uh, you know, and, and he's got incredible collections. He's got one of the the most jaw dropping uh, collections of meteorites, pre Columbian artifacts. He probably has the the oldest compass ever discovered. Um, that's pushed back the age of uh, of the, um, I guess, the earliest known compass, uh, several hundred years. Um, he's got, you know, like I said, an incredible, the world's largest collection of dinosaur tracks. Um, you know, his fossil um, and, you know, ancient um, tools from uh, Paleo Man. And, I mean, he's he's, he's got a, his house is a museum. Yeah, I've seen pictures so, of it, I, I believe. So, yeah, he's it's quite amazing. 
And there's, you know, I mean, he's got a piece of paper that came from the, you know, that was burnt by the uh, Socorro object when it took off, and it has these, these really bizarre micro burns on it. Uh, he's got a glass meteorite that fell into a backyard in Austin. Um, that yeah, that's right. Because he used to live there. In it. Yeah, yeah. He's just—it's just an amazing. I mean, walking through his house is just jaw dropping. What is the? That, go ahead. I'm glad that Tony and Ben um, have struck up a friendship with him and and uh, have been keeping him jazzed because you know he does live in, live in in a, a bit of a bubble and uh, it's unfortunate he does you know he doesn't get out enough and well he's please, such a workaholic. Please tell him not to release the information through MoveOn. Oh God, no, <laughs> no, he'd never do that. Okay, um, I, I, what is the? Let's see. What is the smartest question anybody ever asked you on a UFO tour? Not the dumbest, the smartest, the one that made you go, wait a second. Just something that really made you think. Um, people kind of what ifing. Um, I, 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 it would be hard for me to point it out, but people have asked me, do you think you know that, that this could be some sort of time-based, uh, time-based phenomenon that we're actually dealing with ourselves, coming back from the future, from some distant past where we were high-tech? Um, people asking uh, questions whether this is some sort of quantum thing, whether whether um, this could be happening simultaneously in in different uh, times. Are we dealing with something that's quantum, uh, that's dimensional, that could be just bleeding through or leaking through into our reality? I've you know I've had some some pretty bright people on on the tour, um, engineers. Um, I've had uh, some doctors. Yeah. Um, is there you know, a lot architects. of pushback from those people? Or well, I guess there wouldn't be because they wanted to go on the thing. But you know, is no, there? No, did, no, no, very little. Um, a, a couple, a couple of times, you know, the, the, you know, uh, it, it would be the the, the mom would want to go out and, and uh, maybe one of the kids, and then the other kid or two, and the husband would would be like, "Ah, oh, this is dumb. This is stupid." <laughs> but 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 I'm used to that, you know. I'm a tour guide, so I yeah. I've, I'm used to dealing with people, and I, I make it fun for everybody. You know, when I when I do tours and there's kids involved, I do the the tour for the kids, basically. Right, right, right. Because if they have a good time, the parents do. So right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've had some some pretty bright kids. Uh, you know, who, who have read some books and have asked me uh, uh, questions about specific cases. Well, what do you think about uh, this one or that one? And you know, um, or they ask me, uh, you know, about ancient alien theory. Um, you know, showing that they've been paying attention when they have been watching the show or, or reading books. I've had some people that have been uh, very interested in Sitchin and, and have told me what what problems they've had with Sitchin's work. Um, yeah, and then um, <laughs> I had a painter uh, ask me if she thought that they that the, the the reason why they show up is that it's some sort of art project. <laughs> that was a good one. Wait a second, that's my that's my essay from my book. <laughs> you know that yeah. well. I don't know if you remember, but I, I wrote something in yeah. two thousand eight that are UFOs a cosmic dark project? Exactly. Yeah. That's so, cool that that came from a from a painter that actually asked that. Did she did yeah, she elaborate? Marfa. <laughs> what? She lives in Marfa. Oh, of course. <laughs> and she's, she paints the Marfa lights. Uh huh. Oh, I'd love to see those. 
Yeah. I mean, not only the lights, but the but the paintings. Um, did, did what did she say about it? She just said, "Do you?" She just said, "Do you think it's an art project?" Or did she elaborate? Well, she, and then she went in. She she said that she's she's always gotten the impression that the Marfa lights are very that there's some sort of natural um, artistic expression, is how she put it. That she felt it was the earth kind of showing off uh, and uh, being artistic. <laughs> I think it's a great, great insight, you know, really good theory. Yeah, it, it, it's it as much sense as any other uh, explanation I've heard people try to propose. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can't even remember what the point of mine was. It was, it, I, I think the point of mine was the way that people perceive it is is as if you are looking at the best piece of artwork you ever saw in your life, meaning that you are exposed to a piece of art for five seconds and it changed your entire life. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, that's a very good uh, way of looking at it. And it's true. I mean, you know, fine art, high art uh, can be very, uh, you know, can make you look at your reality differently. Um, a good film will do that. When I remember when yeah. I saw Quest, Quest for Fire. Oh, good. Here, here's a transition. Go ahead looking at my reality a lot differently how did it Gene, change it well just um i mean the entire movie there's no di- you know there's no discernible understandable dialogue there's only right. one word it's no uh, the word no actually is used one time and i think it's uh it's just kind of an aside but you know the whole thing is done with with um with gestures with uh pantomime right uh, and with with grunts and uh but you really didn't need you know a discernible uh form of languaging to to absolutely know exactly what was going on at all times right um and and just the whole idea of of um of how you know i mean they compressed obviously they compressed thousands of uh, tens of thousands of years together into into one you know narrative but or <laughs> pseudo narrative um but but the whole thing about how the cultures um were different but similar um how ray don chong uh you know the the woman uh the lithe woman covered in ash and you know how her how her approach to sex for instance was different from the the more caveman uh approach and it you know living in new york city at the time um it made me look at how <laughs> vestiges of paleo uh our paleo nature uh, is is just below the surface with many people, um, and uh, <laughs> not too far it, below the surface with many people too. Say again. I said not too far below the surface with many people too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially if you go out, you know, to Brooklyn or up to the South Bronx or whatever. <laughs> um, so it just it just I remember walking around just kind of you know I just had a different pair of glasses on for a while. Yeah, and, and I I've never really lost them. I've it. it really had a had a profound uh, sort of impact on me and in, in how I view um, you know human interactions and um, and how we communicate uh, non-verbally especially and and um, you know the kinds of uh, of uh, primitive uh, you know pack behavior and it's in and, and, and unconscious and subconscious signaling and and other things I've always been interested in in subliminal communication um, uh, different forms of languaging that uh, you, you wouldn't normally associate with languaging. Um, you know how we communicate on on subtle uh, and sub, you know more sublime levels, and and um, and the impact of um, 
of programmed uh, uh, of behavior and um, you know like the neuro linguistic programming um, techniques and and um, would be one example. So I've always had an interest in these subjects. In fact, in in college, I my area of concentration was um, you, you know how the government and the media um, programs uh, the culture uh, overtly and covertly uh, through subliminal uh, you know targeting and, and subliminal driving and and and, and different techniques uh, that are used to do that. So I've I've you know, I've, I've always been interested in these things, and and that particular that particular film uh, uh, was was very um, it was just very eye opening, and it, it it did have a you know a, a fairly <clears throat> fairly big impact on me. <clears throat> of course, I I got to see the 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 premiere of it too at the Ziegfeld Theater in New oh, York. And, okay, and uh, you know some of the cast members were there. My first movie uh, film I saw. Um, uh, what's his name? that plays Hellboy. Uh, Ron Perlman. Oh, okay, his yeah, yeah. Main, main film. Uh, he was in that, and uh, and Tommy Chong's daughter, Ray Dong Chong, was in it. Uh, That's playing right. a naked, uh, a naked native, the whole time. That's right. Yeah, uh, I I remember seeing bits and pieces of it. I think were at work at the time because it or it came through work when I was in post production video, and I, I've seen bits and pieces. So I know what you're talking about. Um, it brings up another, you know, issue about language, which is a big thing of mine now. Um, language perception and how language shapes perception and reality. Right. And I was giving, hey Chris, I was giving a talk um, about my co-creation thing recently, and a woman in the back, she said, "Okay, this is fine." Where you say that, you know, everything is cre- things are created by our minds, you know. Uh, uh, forming information into reality in some way, she said. But how does this explain when somebody has a uh, some kind of experience, like maybe in the Amazon rainforest, and then some, like a farmer in Nebraska has the same experience? And I said, well, one, can you give me an example? And two, if there is an example, how do you know that in the translation from the culture, the language, and everything that's going on with the Amazonian rainforest person into something that we can understand, that it just gets changed into something we can understand and has nothing to do with what they were talking about. Because their, their, their language and their experience shapes what they view as reality. So if like something that we think is a flying saucer landed in front of them and something stepped out, their description of it, I would, I would hazard a guess, would be almost unrecognizable to us as as what we yeah. think of of that kind of an encounter yeah yeah no absolutely i mean we all we can only we can only communicate to each other based on our conditioning and our um you know the the width and, and depth of our in, environment that we've experienced in our lives and in in you know you you can only really go with what you know basically and um you know some you know aboriginal person uh you know preliterate person in the amazon rainforest is going to have a hell of a different a different description of uh some sort of technological device landing in front of him well here's a here's a question then who is right the 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 person in the rainforest and their interpretation of it or ray or me or you (laughs) <laughs> there is no right. Uh, it's it's you can't really place value judgments on it. That's true. Um, I mean, they're both they're both completely valid. 
Yeah, but if they say no, it's no, it's no differentiation between them. Yeah, if they say it's an ancestor god that's trying to help them, or or an ancestor that's trying to help. Just for example, I don't know what they'd say. Yeah, but that, that's a great. That would be a, that would that would be a probable explanation. If some shaman saw a UFO land and aliens get out, yeah, it would probably be the ancestors coming. Uh, you know, to, uh, with some sort of lesson or yeah. with some sort of um, um, request or um, some sort of display uh, for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. So, that would be as valid as, yeah. as a farmer in Illinois. Right. Uh, so what what I, what you're saying here, and I think I agree with you, is it's 100 percent equally as valid. And that is exactly what was happening to those people at that time, no matter mm-hmm. how they describe it. Yeah. Not if Ray was there and he had a camera and it would be a plasma thing in a ship and all that. Who would be right in that case? Both of them, I guess. <laughs> well, again, you it, it's you really it's very difficult to assign value. Yeah, what's the uh, ontological reality behind that thing? You know, wh- wh- I I my idea, Chris, is that the ontological reality is the reality. Exactly. I mean, what's real for one person is a fantasy to somebody else and what's a fantasy to uh, another person is is complete reality to somebody else. Yeah, I think we got to so, get out of this I'm right and you're wrong. It's actually this and you're m- misperceiving it. It's like <laughs> how is your perception better than mine? Right. And it's only when you try to explain it in scientific empirical terms that then you get into placing placing some sort of uh valuation uh, or judgment on it uh, in terms of its uh, the efficacy of the of the explanation Uh, you know if you're looking at it trying to determine scientific principles then when you start to compartmentalize your approach to explaining something or uh, attempting to communicate or language uh, an impression of something it's only when you apply that impression towards something that then you get into to value judgments and and whether one uh, explanation carries more weight than another, I think to the witness, uh, which is what your initial question was, to the witness there really is no uh, separation or dif- differentiation. But if you try to communicate that to somebody else, and there's an agenda involved in that languaging and that that communication process, then you get into into value judgments and and mm-hmm. you know what's more legitimate, what's less legitimate, what's more uh, yeah. you know reasonable, uh, what's uh, you oh, know, well, more yeah. rational. Yeah. More there's objective. always an agenda. I mean, that's whether people want to admit it or not. It, there, there's always an agenda, even if they're trying to be brutally 100% honest and fair about things that. The agenda is just your background and your genetics and your culture and right. everything else. So, well, your upbringing, your experience, your life, everything that goes into being you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and again, when I take people out and and uh, attempt to to strip away um, misconceptions, uh, you know, pop culture programming, I do it in a way that shows them that these things are subjective, and that if you really want to be objective. You have to look at things dispassionately, and 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 automatically assume that that light, which is pulsing, you know, above you, it's not beaming you. It's not necessarily calling your name. It's not giving you some sort of <laughs> message. Uh, it, that may be just your imagination at, at work and at play. And you really have to be able to discern, um, you know, the subjective from the objective. Um, 
you know that's that's when it gets that's when it gets difficult is when you when you try to objectify things and and uh, take out the subjective nature of unusual experiences experiences when they're unusual and out, you know beyond the pale um, have a habit of of eliciting primal uh, uh, symbols and signals and images uh, in the in the experiencer you tend to to break things down to a more basic level um, as opposed to um, uh, things that you're familiar with, then then you you know you don't get thrown back into a more primal place yeah. in terms of how how it how it impacts your your um, you know your psyche basically. Yeah. Um, okay. When you're so, talking about weird stuff, what is the difference between uh, an anomalous experience? What is the difference between for you between subjective and objective? I'm seeing. I'm trying. I'm getting to the point where I don't know if there's a difference at this point for an anomalous, almost anything, but especially for an anomalous experience. Well, you know, again, there's there's certain parameters of of uh, you know sequence of events, a direction. Uh, you know, there's a various objective data points um, that should you should try to establish how those data points um, impact you, how it made you feel, mm-hmm. um, the kind of emotional response that was that was produced by those objective you know data points, that gets into the subjective. Um, then you know you're either elated, you're scared, you're you're jazzed, you're frightened, you're excited. Um, those types of emotional responses will then add that subjective sort of veneer to an objective experience. Uh, at least that's that's what I found, and um, it's it's very fascinating to me when I get a, you know, I used to get um, calls. A group of people would be out sky watching. There'd be you know anywhere from, you know, maybe three or four to you know as many as twenty, and uh, to interview everybody separately and to to get each individual subjective. Uh, version of an objective experience uh it was always fascinating me and <laughs> and and occasionally it'd be all over the map yeah well then how do you know what the objective experience is when you've got 20 different versions of it um because you can basically you know it's it's like anything else and you know with the scientific method you um you know you sample you take a sampling of the um of the experiencers and then you come up with a a, a curve you know the Sort of a, an average uh, mean, um, you know, it, 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 twenty people will have you know a different idea of the duration of event. They'll have uh, you know their own sort of personal subjective impression of how long an event occurs. For instance, um, oftentimes duration tends to to ebb and flow, and uh, sequence of events: what happened first, second, third, fourth. Um, that oftentimes right. gets a little little fuzzy. But if you have, you know, half a dozen people to 20 people, you're going to be able to come up with a pretty good idea of what actually happened based on an average from all the, you know, throwing all the experiences together and, and seeing seeing where they agreed. I see. I, yeah, I've I've not done this. You know, I'm, I'm just I'm doing the uh, armchair thing where it's like, well, how do you how do you know what you're extrapolating was what was go- well, I guess you don't. I mean, you're just extrapolating best you can, but then to say that all these people point to this thing, so this is probably what it is, is a best guess. 
Right. Well, you, you're you're taking an average. It's like how 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 do you um, you know, what is the scientific method? It's doing the same thing a thousand times and taking an average and coming up with uh, with a number that's an average. Throw throw out your extremes, you know, your right. anomalous <laughs> readings, which which are the readings that I I prefer to concentrate on actually. Uh, you know, you throw out the uh, the high and low and and uh, and, and get an average uh, and. So essentially, that's what you're doing when you're interviewing multiple witnesses to a single event. You're, you're, uh, you know, some people, you know, I've had events where, you know, half the people saw something and the other half either didn't see it or they saw something completely different. Those yeah. are really interesting. Yeah. What the hell do you that's, do with that's those? That's when you get into some real head scratching. Yeah. Uh, if people come to the uh, International UFO Conference, I've, I, I'm going to address that kind of thing and a possible route of explanation for it. not explanation, but possible route of uh, research for it. So, right, which is why yeah, I like those, hearing it those things. Not very often, but it, but it, you know, I've had experiences where you know two or three people were absolutely gobsmacked. They couldn't understand what everybody else was talking about. They absolutely could not experience. The event. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, the first thing people would say is like, well, they just couldn't handle it. So they're, you know, and I would tend to agree with that. They're just, you know, whatever is going on, they're either one, they, their, their sensory apparatus doesn't work for it or something, or two, it's just so ridiculous that somewhere between uh, their senses picking it up and there's some conscious awareness, they go, nah, no, no, that's not there. And your conscious awareness just goes, well, there's nothing there. I can't see it. Yeah, denial. <laughs> yeah, and it's not—it's not a thing where you just like, well, you're in denial. It's just kind of like their their subconscious says, "There's no place to put this, so we're just not going to worry about it." Yeah, yeah. You know, I think. Yeah, that, it doesn't happen very often, but but I've had I've had that happen where people just you know they absolutely said, "I have no idea what these people were going on." I really tried to look and see and experience it, but I, I thought everybody was nuts. <laughs> yeah. And everybody else thought this person was nuts. Like, how could you not have seen that? I would really <laughs> like to see a collection of those, like, you know, multiple witness um, yeah. uh, uh, sightings, especially close ones, and yeah. see what people said, you know, what people were doing at the time, you know, a, a very in-depth uh, examination of what's going on with the perception, because I think... I don't know about you, Chris, but I think perception is really, really, really like the basic part of of uh, UFO study, and we should really concentrate on human perception because if yeah. we can we can get the noise of human perception out of there and how it reacts, either we find out one, you know, back engineer whatever the hell's going on, or two, get to the point where we go, we can't count on our perceptions <laughs> for for this. So you know, what what are we left with anyway? That that's that's my hobby horse right now. Yeah, cool. I can't wait to hear your talk. That's going to be good. Uh, I'll be that. That'll be one of the few talks that I actually go to. <laughs> <laughs> you know who I'm? I'm up before is uh, uh, right after me is John Alexander. Oh, that'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm actually looking forward to his talk. Um, yeah, no, he's very good. He's very entertaining. He's funny. I remember his first time he presented. Uh, he was in his black suit, you know, with the black tie and the black yeah. suit coat yep, pants. Yep. And uh, and at the end, he, he stuck on these black wrap around Tommy Lee, Lee, Lee Jones shades and had actually one of the props from the movie, Men in Black, and said, I want everybody to look into the light. <laughs> 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 it 
Because I used to, I used to be, everybody. Yeah, I used to be scared of him for I don't know what reason. Probably because I was told to be. I, since I've gotten to know him, I, I, I like him. I, I think he's a, he's a, he's a, a absolutely fascinating guy. I mean, the guy's, you know, for the last ten years, pretty much, he's been going around the world looking at at shamanic uh, healing t- uh, modalities and and shamanic uh, uh, traditional shamanic systems of. Uh, of spirituality and healing around the world, and mm. uh, fascinating. Uh, some of the places he's gone, and some of the you know things that he's experienced uh, are, are are really amazing. And um, you know, and, and and then there's Victoria, who's kind of a piece of work. His wife, uh, she's she, she's the only person I've ever met that uh, claims to live on 600 calories of egg whites a day. <laughs> I think there was somebody on Coast to Coast that claimed that. No, he said you have to eat like 16 eggs a day or something. It's like, are you nuts? With just the egg whites. <laughs> yeah, but she just said, oh, she that's better. That's fine then. Okay. Um, and I hung, out, I hung out at the Congress across from their table. I was watching her the whole time. Yeah. And I saw her take a sip of water. And I think I went out to dinner with them twice. And she never ate a thing. She never took a sip of water. Aspiring breatharian, I think would be Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought the breatharian got caught like sneaking Twinkies at night or something. <laughs> uh, the person that founded breatharianism, at least that's that's the story. I guess that's that. Yeah. Got to look up Snopes, you know. Like, did the did the breatharian get caught with Twinkies? Probably I don't know. Probably kill a breatharian. Yeah. Um, there, there's a there, a, a few um, questions from from the audience, the listening audience. Uh, Okay. And and um, they they point more to your um, uh, mysterious valley and cattle mutilation researcher w- research, which is fine. Um, let's see. John wants to know: Given Chris's early connection to the Skinwalker Ranch, does he have any insight or thoughts on the new owners of the ranch? And I guess, uh, and I'll add, and what they what they plan to do. Well, again, I I really don't know enough about the new owners. Uh, it may just be. Um, just one more degree of separation uh, between Bigelow and the public. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I, I don't even know if, if there, um, if there is still a connection between these owners and um, Bigelow Aerospace or, or Bigelow uh, personally. Um, it may just be another veil. Um, you know, I haven't really uh, dug into it that much at this point. I do have some people working on it um, who are um, checking it out and doing some. Um, some legwork and in, in trying to um, ascertain who these folks are. But I did see a pretty cryptic little, little thing. Um, I think Erica Lukes was on uh, George Knapp. Uh, yes, I was, I was working that night. And uh, he mentioned that there's been an upswing in activity. Yes. On the ranch since the new owners have been there. Maybe, maybe the activity just doesn't like scientists, <laughs> you know, maybe now that there's non-scientists there, maybe, maybe now we'll, we'll go into another, period of, of heightened activity. But, you know, I've, I've noticed, Craig, and I've I mentioned this on the show, I think, a couple times, that whenever we, we seem to be winding down um, militarily overseas, that we see an upswing in paranormal activity back here at home. Um, no, so, I don't remember you saying that, but that's, that's yeah, I've yeah, never I've noticed, noticed that, that, but you're right, I think. Yeah. All the big UFO waves have happened when we have, uh, you know, troops coming back from overseas um, from, uh, you know, in, in the following year or two. Of course, uh, good examples would be, um, you know, 46, 47. Yeah. Um, and then um, 51. Uh, uh, and then to, to a lesser degree, uh, 53. And then, of course, um, 
um, when we had the first kind of drawdown of uh, in Vietnam, just before the big escalation in 66, 67, we had a bit of a drawdown. And then we had the escalation. And then, of course, as soon as uh, we started really pulling back from Vietnam, uh, 72, we had in 73, we had an incredible, one of the biggest waves ever. Uh, as soon as we, we started coming, uh, you know, back from Desert Storm, 92, 93, uh, we had uh, a, a, another upsurge of activity. And uh, we seem to have had a bit of an upsurge of activity, um, you know, as soon as we start drawing down from Iraq and, and Afghanistan, uh, we've seen we've seen a, a bit of an upsurge of activity. And, and I have... Uh, a sneaking hunch that we're going to be going into another uh, period of, of heightened activity over the next year or two. Also, when there's a change in the executive branch of this country from one party to the other, uh, when that dovetails with a drawdown militarily, uh, you tend to have your your heaviest um, siding wave periods. Yeah, I never knew that, and I never I, I've never heard anybody bring that up. Uh, that that question was That's from John. John, by the way, I'm kind of stumbled on that one. Uh. What during the show, Knapp actually named the company that bought it, and I'll have to look it up again. I don't know exactly what he said. Holding uh, company, uh, if I remember, it's what? It's what? Some real estate uh, holdings company. I looked up the um, the name that I thought he gave, and it said it was a media company. Oh, really? Yeah, I can't remember the name, but I immediately typed it in, and it said so and so media, and that's all it said. It's like. So they're going to make huh. movies here? That kind of worries me. <laughs> they're going to make yeah. videos? Are they turning this into like, you know, a place where they can get uh, weird video on demand? Yeah, right. Weird stuff on demand? I mean, it, it, there you go. That kind of worries I, I me. I thought it was a real estate holding company, but uh, I may be wrong. Well, somebody has to look it up. I, I, if, Like I said, Knapp said it during the show. He said, well, so-and-so company. He said it very quickly. And I was like, oh. And I... I um. I might have typed it into my notes. I'll go look at my notes and see. But yeah, like I said, I I put it in a search engine right away, right when they went to commercial, and I was like, oh, hey, uh, that's it's a media. It says it says media company or media holdings or media something. Um, but it had to do with media, which mean to me means they're they want to develop the area for TV shows or something. I, that, that that's yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Actually. Yeah, I could be wrong, but that's what I found out when I typed in what I think he said the name of the company that owned it. Now, yeah, was. shoot anything that you find out, uh, shoot shoot along. I'd I'd really be interested to know. Okay, uh, I'm going to be uh, speaking with Erica. Uh, I think I'm doing her show here in a couple of days, so I'll um, I'll get a little bit more information. I, she's one of the people that said that she's digging into this a little bit. You know, being up there in Utah and everything. So. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be interesting to to get uh you know a blow by blow on that and find out uh who these people are and whether there still is some sort of uh lingering relationship with Bigelow. Um which uh I don't know, I just I still don't know what to make of the whole you know, fifteen years that they you know or ten solid years that they tried to tried to, you know, collect data up there. Um, you know, when people tell me it's like, it's why is Bigelow keeping this for himself or why is it so secretive? I think there's a good reason for that. It's, it's to con- not, it's to keep the thing from turning into a circus and have the data contaminated. 
I think there's a well, I, I yeah. think it's a real good reason to be secretive about what you're doing because you need to work in, in you need to work without distraction and without people telling you what to do and about you know until you're done you say well this is what happened um, I don't think they I don't think they release much of the information one because um, it's you know maybe they thought I was unreleasable and it was too weird or whatever. But more importantly, too, I think it's because I don't think they found anything where they could say, this is what's going on, and we figured it out. They could not replicate anything. Everything happened. Everything was a one-off. And in science, we know that you have to try to de- right, demonstrate right. repeatability. And, and if you can't repeat uh, you know, your, your data set, it's, you don't want to be uh, releasing anything because it'll just uh, – it'll show that you're not being methodical and scientific about it. You're just being uh, sensational. Right. And, and that's, that's kind of you know the same way with Ray. That's why he doesn't release his stuff is because he wants it to be accepted uh, scientifically. And, uh, you know, it, once that happens, then sure, anybody who wants to have access to it, sure, go ahead. But you can't contaminate it, like you said, you know? Yeah. And that you know that's my that's my hobby horse. Another one of them. It's like let's get rid of or at least form a bunch of smaller groups. Have them be very focused and um, directed about what they're doing. Small groups of people who trust each other, doing you know maybe way off the wall things. And if something works, tell us about it. Come back and tell us. Yeah. You don't have to tell us when you're doing it. In fact, it's probably a bad idea to tell us when you're doing it. No TV shows. No book deals. No movies. Do some damn research and then see if other people can replicate it. That that's what I think should happen. Well, ideally, yeah, in a perfect world. But we both know that it's you know there's a snowball snowball chance snowball's chance in hell to be able to replicate this stuff. That's why it's so fascinating and why the scientific and academic communities don't want anything to do with it because it, it totally yeah it, it it's just it's just too it's too confusing for them because there's nothing to, to for them to to, to sink their teeth into and yeah. to really, um, you know, have have a, have a leg up on it, and 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 when you don't, I don't think it's going to happen. You're not Chris. able to repeat data results of of whatever hypothetical you're coming up with, and whatever process that you're you're repeating to to replicate uh, right. results. I know what you're saying. It's it's just it's too confusing. It, it's it's cognitive dissonance. They, they they just don't want to deal with it. Yeah, well, that's uh, the part of it, the, the huge part of it. I don't think that science can deal with, which is fine because we're humans and we have other ways of 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 uh, uh, perceiving things. The my, my I think part of my point here is a rather oblique one, and it's if the thing, as Streber and some other people have said, and and we seem to notice, is so damned individualized. Maybe there's a way for people to access an individual experience. That would be interesting to figure out. And it's not something that can be replicated as an individual experience, not replicated as the same results. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, A state of mind, you could put yourself in a certain place where something will happen. You could have somebody sitting next to you that does not have that experience, but it becomes real for you. And the point is not to go out and start proselytizing about that and saying you're right. I think we're we're more apt to see that sort of scenario play out in a uh, more of like a haunted site uh, scenario or some sort of um, reflective sort of uh, reoccurring sort of thing, spook lights, um, mm-hmm. uh, possibly uh, crypto uh, sightings in, in bodies of water, 
um, th- those types of scenarios, I think, are <laughs> you you stand a much better chance, I think, of being able to to have that repeatability in um, location specific type right. uh, scenarios. Yeah, UFO. A percipient initiated repeatability. I think that would be that. That's maybe that's what I'm getting at. Could be completely off, you know, completely off the track. But if it's so individual, it, it would be nice if somebody could say, "Look, this seems to work for a lot." Like, um, if you do a remote viewing experiment, uh, a lot of people, including me, have great success the first time, and then it then then it just goes in the toilet for a while, and you have to stick with it. But right. I think that, and, and it was just, you know, a very simple thing. I had to put myself in a state of mind where I was just open to things and all, and it worked. It seemed, it seemed to work. I, I guessed pretty close and a friend of mine guessed exactly what I had hidden in my house. Um, like exactly out of thousands of things. So, you know, the, the, if somebody can figure out a way to put us in a state of mind to experience a, well, I'm repeating myself now, but you know what I mean? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If somebody can say, look, <laughs> I saw it, but it's not what you saw, but I still saw something and that person did too. And that person did too. I think that might be a step. Uh, definitely. It would be a step. And and that's what makes, you know, these subjects so fascinating. I think to, to, to people is that tantalizing, you know, you can almost put your finger on it. You can almost get that repeatability. You can almost get those results that, that, that would validate it. But it's just tantalizingly, you know, just a, a little bit out of out of reach, and that's yeah. what keeps us kind of going. And I, I think that's part of that's built into the scenario. I think it's that that aspect that keeps us um, keeps us going, moving forward, keeps us uh, at least interested enough in not to get burnt out. Uh, you know, just in general, not to get burnt out and uh, totally um, throw your hands up in, in, in frustration and disgust like many people do, but, but there's just enough of that tantalizing, uh, quality to, to, you know, keep, keep people like you and me and and others interested enough to, uh, to, to be active and, and, you know, actually uh, attempt to, uh, you know, ponder these things and come up with, uh, with ways to, to further our understanding. Um, you know, some people are more armchair than others. Some people tend to, you know, like me, I, I, I really wanted to get out there and actually interview the people, experience the stuff, uh, get right. the phone trees going, you know, be, really be proactive about it. Um, but, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, I've kind of outgrown that. I don't really need to log 300,000 miles on my truck in six years and, yeah. and zip around and, and spend all that time and resources, you know, chasing after stuff. Uh, you know, yeah, you, you can get to a point of, of saturation where you've accumulated so much experience and so much data and, and so much information that that you really have to kind of let it digest and simmer and kind of, you know, kind of percolate along a little bit so you can yeah. have a better understanding of what it is that you've been after. Well, after all those years of doing that and you stopped doing one, why, and two, with the benefit of hindsight, after collecting all this data, interviewing all those people, and doing the field work, how you know what are you left with now? What 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 are you left with? Is you know not an explanation, but what's your impression of that? Of you're known as a cattle mutilation person, probably first and foremost, for better or worse. How do you feel about it now after all that? After you, as you say, stopping. <laughs> I watched this Ben Mizrak guy who co-wrote the book, uh, the Thirty Seventh Parallel. Yes, wrote a book about Chuck Zukowski. Yeah, and 
Oh, just watching his TED talk. I mean, it was the most pop culture, you know, just blatant generalization. Lutes. All these cattle are found on their left side. They're all drained of blood. They there's never any any evidence left behind. Uh, they most of these cases occur along the 37th parallel, and it's so funny. I remember when I when I first was uh, turned on to the to the whole book project. And uh, this ridiculous uh, uh, theory or hypothesis that Chuck Zukowski came up with that the the UFO highway, the 37th parallel, that most mutilations in UFO uh, sightings occur along this particular latitude line. I remember going to my friend David Perkins saying, well, well, what about the cases in Patagonia? And he yeah. goes, Patagonia, really? There's cases in Patagonia? <laughs> I said, uh, actually, I've never heard of any, but, you know, I'm Sure, there's some down there, and wouldn't you know it, about a month ago, <laughs> there was an outbreak of mutilations in Patagonia. <laughs> there's 40 cases. <laughs> Keep your mouth shut, Chris. God, those poor ranchers <laughs> and those cows. <laughs> so, I, you know, I fired this guy off a, an email just to try to, you know, put, put some, you know, some sense into his befuddled brain. You know, uh, it's, it's, no. Oh. In answer to your question, um, no, I like the aside. That was good. It's just it's it's an uphill battle trying to uh, trying to uh, de-educate people and all these these misnomers and gross generalizations and and just categorically untrue uh, facts that uh, are being bannered about as 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 real and and truthful. Um, you know, it's an uphill battle. To maintain and attain and maintain a, a level of intellectual honesty that uh, it's you just don't find it in uh, much of the work that's uh, that's bannered about and and gets on New York Times bestseller list. Um, you know, if I was unscrupulous and, and wanted to, you know, be in it for the money and the cult of personality and to tout myself and all this, I, I you know, I, I would have a field day. You know, I make Sean David Morton and you know Linda and Chuck Zukowski and all these people. I make them look like <laughs> like they were standing still, but that's not why I'm in it. I'm in it for uh, you know, like you. I, I want to know. I, I I really I'm I'm intellectually stimulated uh, by this uh, by these subjects. Um, I really feel that um, I have a brand of insight that uh, uh, approaches uh, some of these uh, conundrums uh, from a new and different um, angle uh, with fresh eyes, and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have traded any of all that hard work in for anything. Um, you know, the basic rule of thumb is if people are making their money off these subjects and paying their bills, they're absolutely compromised, and you shouldn't really trust pretty much anything they they have to say. <laughs> so. Um, or apply the you know, stop clock kind of uh, thing, huh? Or apply the stop clock hypothesis, where occasionally they're right, but there's just so much yeah. junk in there; it's just kind of like not worth it. Um, well, every six months they have to come up with something else to keep their their visibility up, and yeah, yeah. and um, you know, I I just find it it's it's an uphill battle uh, trying to um, combat the uh, the fuzzy logic and the cog you know cognitive dissonance that's that's being bannered about as as fact and and you know you pointed out you and miguel said well you know it doesn't really matter what people think it's not your job to uh 
you know, to uh, to show people that their you know that their logic isn't isn't sound. And uh, if they if they want to believe in these things, that's you know that's their business. And, and you're right, really. Yeah. But it's it's when that impacts the credibility of the subject matter and and the 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 pop culture sort of cliff notes uh, misnomers and uh, and and just pure BS as far as I'm concerned. When that impacts the the efficacy and the reality of the real work then I, I feel that I, I, I really should speak up and I, I do speak up and I do, mm-hmm. I do uh, make exception to, uh, you know, stupid, uh, st- stupid assertions, uh, you know, gross generalizations and, and, and things like that. Uh, that's what gives these subjects a really bad name and, and, and what really shoots us down in the eyes of, of, of the scientific and academic communities. I mean, you know, somebody's got to be the little, Dutch boy with his finger in the dike of, yeah. you know, the, yeah. it's holding back all the freaking BS. Yeah. It's hey, Chris, a, uh, you, you, you'll hate me for saying this, but why why bother? You know, what? why bother with something that I think is going at it from let's get rid of all the noise so we can have the, the signal in here and it looks good to the public. Why, it, how is that going to solve the problem? I don't think it will because stupidity will always find a way. and with this subject until there's an agreement on what it is at a basic level by everybody stupidity will always find its way in so it's just kind of like a you know and my my view of it's like i've got questions i want answered for myself so i you know maybe i just don't like conflict or i don't know what it is but it's, it's what i don't like is useless conflict if it's useful conflict where we're we're working at a problem, great. But if it's like somebody going, it's aliens. No, it's not. It's aliens. No, it's not. You know what? Screw you. Fine. It's aliens. Leave well, me alone. No. Yeah. Well, you, you asked about the cattle stuff, and I'm I'm talking specifically about a subject that I oh okay I yeah yeah more right more, right more knowledge about and and then you know billions of people on the planet. I understand. Okay, now I know uh, where you're coming from. If I had didn't done that much work and I see somebody coming out and saying so and so it's you know this is the reason for it. it's like but, but but you just came out and said that after looking at it for 5 minutes. That would piss me off. You're right. So I understand yeah, what you're someone saying. Someone like Chuck who says that he's been investigating cattle mutilations for 35 years. I mean that's that's that is plain not true. Uh he's been at it since 2007. And uh, to, you know, to have to go to those kinds of lengths to legitimize your position and your opinion about what it is that you think you're doing uh, and attracting a world class, you know, uh, writer who is then going to write and get a hardcover book, book deal for The New York Times, that is putting a big wobble in the force. Yeah, and uh, and and I, I really I can't abide that. That's I understand. That's something, that's something that, that 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 that's way over the top for me. And when I see statements like "all these cattle are drained of blood," "all these cattle are found on the left side," most if not all these cattle are found along the thirty seventh latitude line, I, I I just it it just makes me grind my teeth. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. Okay, Chris, I I withdraw my thing about in your case with cattle mutilation. If I had studied something for as long as you had, somebody started saying BS, you know, after looking at it for five years, I'd be pissed off too. So I understand. Um, right, and, and and the whole thing about calling the media and saying aliens are attacking our cattle and and not investigating the ranchers 
whose cows are supposedly being uh, targeted, finding out that these guys have questionable records with insurance companies, how that they're not well considered within their per, you know their regional ranching communities. Some. Some. Well, the, the particular cases that. Uh, oh, I see. You're talking about. Yeah, you're talking about on. in his book. Okay. Well, the the cases that he made his career on, let's put it that way, because mm-hmm. he keeps going back to the same ranchers. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 see, it, when it when it gets to the point where people are absolutely pulling, trying to pull the wool over people's eyes and thinking they're getting away with it, uh, you know, I've, I've got to, you know, I've got to speak up. I just, I just have to. I understand you know, because too many ranchers who uh, who deserve better. I understand. It's a you know, if somebody says something against like uh, nobody has, but if somebody came out and said Gabe Valdez was a liar, I'd get pissed off. Yeah, exactly. Because he was a friend of mine, and as far as I could tell, he never lied to me. And you know, he not that only anybody's ever said on that over a hundred cases. Yeah, and he actually went out and did the work too. Yeah, and then later on, he investigated even more cases uh, uh, for NIDS. Right, and you know, somebody who's making claims of being out there for decades and. And people that have been in the field for for decades have never even heard of the guy. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. So who's this? I've gotten people that go, "Who's this Chuck guy?" Yeah, Steve has three questions, and um, Bernie Mooney has one. Um, St- Steve's, I one of them. It looks like a joke question, but I'm sure it isn't. In and Out Burger exercises extreme quality control over their beef stock, so it's still okay to eat double doubles, right? I think what yeah. he's saying is that it. it, it is any beef safe that's produced to the well a lot of it doesn't come from the United States. Well, yeah, and and um obviously if you're if you're if you have have to eat uh fast food hamburgers, uh in and out would be the best by far the best chain because they are in control of their their beef and um and and I think quality wise it's the best. Um, now Carl's Jr. in Hardee's has a all-natural uh, hamburger that's twice as expensive as the regular hamburgers, but there's no antibiotics, there's no steroids, um, there's no growth hormones, and they're grass-fed. Generally, if you can get grass-fed beef that comes from your local region um, that's locally processed, uh, that kind of beef is okay. Now, politically, <laughs> you know, just eating beef is, you know, is – you know, politically, um, with you know the the detrimental impact that uh, that beef have on on our environment, uh, 1.5 billion head of cattle are you know creating more deserts, creating more uh, you know reason to cut down rainforest, largest source of freshwater pollution, largest natural producer of ozone depleting gases. Uh, you know, 80 percent of the antibiotics we use go into beef, 60 percent of the growth hormones. Um, you know, uh, sizable. I think half the steroid uh, use uh, goes into um, into beef and um, other uh, uh, poultry and um, and and you know uh, pig swine. Uh, so, what did we make in our bar- barbecue? I can't remember. There was chicken. Was there other stuff? <laughs> uh, I, I forget. I think. Um, I think you bought the beef, the meat for that. I did, and I uh, we do have a local guy that does it here, and I actually can look down and see <laughs> see the herd uh, that some of it comes from. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, SOV uh, processing is here, and uh, 
that's that's probably the the best way to do it. Um, if you like red meat, I would suggest bison. Bison's a wild game. You don't have any of the problems that you have potentially uh, in bison that you would have with beef. Um, it makes uh, a delicious the, uh, steak too. It, you know, the best steak I've ever had was a bison flavor. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's it's uh, it's wild game, and you can't tell the difference if you had a bison burger. Uh, that was uh, you know prepared adding a little bit of oil because it's 99% lean uh, um, except for that that leanness uh, it's vir- virtually indistinguishable from uh, from beef I I would uh, pay twice as much and eat half as much is is my is my recommendation to people um, mm-hmm. and 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 grass fed and you know don't don't eat that that real fatty uh, grain fed. You know the the amount of grain that we put just in this country that we put into uh, into cattle to fatten them up as quickly as possible. That amount of grain would feed the two billion starving people on this planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you just have to be um, kind of mindful about what you do. You can still eat yeah. meat. Um, yeah, and I, I still eat meat, but I, I don't eat near as much, and and I'm very 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 aware of where it comes from. Right. Uh, let's see. Steve Ray's question two. What is the silliest mut- mutilation he's ever heard about? It sounds like a question I'd ask. Silliest. <laughs> um, believe this one or not. Um, Eli Hronick was a rancher up in Eagle's Nest, uh, which is just east of uh, of um, Taos, New Mexico, up in the Moreno Valley. And this guy in two years lost over 50 head. And uh, one of his neighbors uh, called up. Uh, Gail Stalen, one of the investigators who was working with me down in New Mexico, and said, uh, you know, you and your, your buddy should come up here. And the guy's name was John Mutes, M-U-T-Z. <laughs> okay. okay, but, but I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even, I haven't even started here yet. <laughs> so I, I, I make the drive. It was like a four-hour drive down there, three-and-a-half-hour drive. And uh, we go to the Mutes Ranch. <laughs> And uh, we go up, and he has this beautiful ranch house that overlooks, you know, his pasture. It's up on a hill. He can see, you know, his three, four hundred acres uh, out front where he, he had his uh, mamas and the babies. I'm still uh, it was springtime. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, I was sitting up here <laughs> yesterday, and, uh, you know, my, my mamas and babies were down there, you know, grazing away peacefully. and. All of a sudden, they started to, 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 to move together in a tight group, and there was about 60 head. And they started, they were agitated, they were moving, and I could see them raising their heads and stamping their feet, and they were moving and milling around, but in a yeah. real tight, tight group. Huh. And uh, I, I figured there's something going on down there. There's something, you know, he thought maybe it was uh, coyotes or maybe some sort of a bear, even. What time of day? Uh, so, uh, it was in the morning. Okay. After sunup. Okay. And uh, so he started to head down there. You know, he had been sitting on his porch having his coffee, you know, just watching watching his, his herd down there, about a, a little less than a quarter mile away. So he goes down there, and, and by the time he got down there, all the uh, all the mamas and babies had all separated out, and they, they you know, they were normal. And there was a mutilated calf sitting there. Laying on the ground in the time, and he he really didn't take his eye off it the whole time he was going to. How the far away? How far no, away was it? No, uh, between an eighth and a quarter mile. Not that far. 
Yeah, four or five hundred yards, maybe six hundred yards. Yeah, yeah. He said there was no uh, animal on the ground. Uh, It seemed like all the you know the babies and the mamas were all paired off like normal. When he went down there, there was a mama mooing, and there was a baby that was laying on the ground mutilated. And he said, "Gail, Chris, I think I, I I got the answer. I think I know what's going on here. It's a cow thing." We're just buttoning in where we don't belong. They're, they're figuring it out. They're working it out. So we should just let them work it out. It's a cow thing. <laughs> and did you go I, see I, this? I did you God, see I'm this? Making this up. Did you this see this calf? On the Mutes Ranch. Yes, of course. Did you see the calf yourself? Yeah. How long after? A day. Huh. A day and a half. Yeah. I came down the next day. He called her that night, and I I met her up there, and we went, we went out there, and I saw it. God. <laughs> on the Buttes Ranch. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the, that's the, the, the end all to be all. Uh, in answer to you, that is the silliest, most bizarre case uh, by far. And did it happen again on his ranch? No. Just the one time? Yeah, and then his neighbor uh, further to the south, Eli, lost 50 head. <laughs> how do you know it was, I mean, it, how do you categorize it as a mutilation? It had, what What was wrong with the calf? Man, it was gone. Rear end was gone. Uh, there was a, a, a pretty good si- a size a patch of hide off the side that uh, looked like it had been cut out. Mm-hmm. While he was sitting there watching While he was the- sitting there watching his herd from up on the hill uh, sitting on his porch. Is there a chance he couldn't have seen it in the tall grass or something to begin with? No. Huh. He said it, it, it was there when they all separated out. When he was walking down there, they all separated out and they they you know they they stopped being agitated. They all started wandering off yeah. and there was a there was a mutilated calf there. Yeah, well my, my point was how did he know it wasn't there beforehand? Um because he would have noticed. You mean they, they they there wasn't like like I said tall grass or cattle standing in the way or anything? Maybe uh, babies do lay down, but uh, generally they're not going to lay flat like that. Um, yeah, so they started doing this as they they weren't doing it when he was first up, but then they just started doing it. He said that he did not notice any animal on the ground. No, none of the babies were on the ground. Uh, prior to them getting together in the in the the you know agitated in a in a group. Well, I guess I would say it was a cow thing if I saw that too. <laughs> that's the only that's the only thing that he could come up with, and uh, you know I don't think he was punking us. He had no reason to. Yeah. Well, that, and, good question, Steve. I wish I thought of that one. Valley. In fact, uh, there was a, another a couple of cases on the ranch that was further north from him. But the rancher refused to talk about it, and we we were unable to uh, officially discern, you know, you know, determine whether cases officially had had happened because he wouldn't he wouldn't uh, he would neither confirm or deny that he had had cases. So mm-hmm. so ranches around him had had cases, especially to the south. Poor Eli, he like I said, he lost fifty head, uh, forty nine or fifty head in in uh, uh, two seasons. God, how many out of how many? <clears throat> Four or five hundred. That's that's sizable. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. My um, my, the family. I'm. Go ahead. I think he he may have gone out of business. Actually, the I think f- he, he he ended up selling his herd and saying fuck this. Yeah, because he, 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 you get to this point where it seems some of these things seem like a Scooby Doo. It's like who wants them out? What who bought the land afterwards? 
Well, you know, he he had um, he was renting, he was leasing uh, grazing rent land. Oh, okay. He had okay. his cows all over the valley, but they were only targeting his cows. Yeah. For who knows what reason? Never able to figure that out, huh? Yeah, and Linda was involved in in uh, in some of the early cases. John Altshuler uh, was right. involved. Um, I did a sightings uh, uh, TV show up there. We did a sightings episode. Uh, Gail Gail was working with him uh, really closely. Gail who? Gail Staten. Gail Stalin. She was a, a mute investigator back in the nineties. Oh, okay. And uh, uh, go ahead. Well, it, <laughs> so <laughs> in answer to his question, that's the silliest. That's the silliest, most bizarre one. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty silly and bizarre. Um, Bernie Mooney asked, after 40 years or so, why are these so-called mutilations still happening? It doesn't make any sense on either an alien or terrestrial biological black ops level. And I think that the answer is encoded in that question. Well, yeah. Um, if if they're monitoring the environment, yeah, they have to periodically do sampling. So, yeah, I mean, that that's the only explanation that would actually make sense. Uh, in answer to the question of why would they still be doing it, you know, of course, the the big, uh, the largest amounts of animals being taken in this manner down in South America. Um, I just mentioned that there were forty cases uh, in southern Chile, I think, uh, wherever Patagonia is, uh, southern Argentina. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that right as um, hoof and mouth disease was finally being stamped out and eradicated a huge outbreak in uh, 99 through 2002 right as the last animals were being inoculated and they were they were they declared the outbreak over that's when the wave of mutilation started in 2002 and have gone on for 14 years and uh we're up somewhere around 4000 cases down there and in the meantime we haven't seen uh, the the types of numbers in North America that we saw in, in the nineties, let's say, or the seventies um, and uh, some in the late eighties. So, yeah. So, know. so why is it still going on? Are you saying it's, is that your, it's kind of the go-to thing, the, 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 the environmental monitoring or the, cause I remember it, you know, in the, in the last book, um, the, uh, the, your, 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 uh, the, the biggest cattle, your, your final cattle mutilation book. Um, stalking the Herd. Yeah, in, in Stalking the Herd, you've, you've, I think the point of the book was nothing makes any sense. Any explanation you come up with doesn't seem to explain everything. Not all cases, yeah, exactly. Um, but the, the most evidence that, if you want to call it evidence, or let's put it this way, the the one explanation that has more supporting it than any other explanation right. would be some sort of environmental monitoring uh, program that's going on. And when you're monitoring something, you have to you know, periodically sample, uh, get a sampling of, of what it is that you're monitoring. So that would be the only um, theory that would explain why um, these cases are still going on. You know, people say aliens are doing this to gather genetic material. It, it, to me, it's ludicrous. Why would they sneak around in pastures? Why not just pick the, the lock on a slaughterhouse or an abattoir and go in and get all the genetic material they, they could possibly ever need? And you only need one or two. Well, <laughs> obviously, no. If, 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 let's if you were gathering genetic material, you just theory, need yeah. one. <laughs> you would think, yeah. You would think. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, 
that particular theory is sensational. It's fear-based. It has this kind of weird sci-fi sort of victim uh, sort of tinge to it. And that's why, why it's so titillating to people uh, and why certain investigators have made careers out of promoting this particular theory. Um, it doesn't make sense. It's with the level of technology that we have now, you wouldn't need to gather body parts uh, in that fashion to uh, to hybridize a dying alien race or feed, you know, create some sort of food source that they absorb through their skin or whatever the, you know, cockamamie uh, theory. <laughs> um, it, it, what we're seeing is we're seeing it's not necessarily the, the cow and it's where the cow is in the in the environment that's important here. Um, it's kind of a forest for the trees type scenario. It's the environment. It's the, it's the region. And the reason why it's mostly uh, probably you know, east of the Rockies for the most part is because that's where uh, environmental degradation has occurred uh, with above ground radiation, with uranium mines, with missile silos, uh, with uh, processing and weaponization uh, uh, operations, all this stuff. Uh, a majority of your nuclear power plants are all, you know, east of the Rockies. And so with that type of in, in potential environmental degradation, uh, and if they're wanting to sample that and, and, and keep, keep an eye on this, then they would be sampling regions that were in these areas east of the Rockies. That's why you have very, very few cases in, in California, very few cases in Oregon, very few cases in Washington. And they're probably done just to keep an eye on the control the control data to make sure um, with this Fukushima thing, I'm, I, I predicted that we would see a rise in cases uh, uh, west of the Rockies. And uh, we, we are seeing some cases being reported, but you know, the weirder the case, the less likely it is to be reported, unfortunately. And yeah. uh, I think there's a lot of cases that are occurring that aren't getting reported because the, the rancher knows that, all he's going to do is just open himself up to ridicule and a world of, of, of you know, a world of hurt in his his community if he admits that these things are happening. So they they tend to cover them up and they 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 bury them, they drag them off to a bone pile, they don't file claims on them. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it makes it really difficult for people like myself to determine the the width and and breadth and extent of. Of of where these cases uh, are occurring and how how you know how often they're occurring to, on what you know how many on what level um, generally if if the rancher sees a helicopter or he sees something that has government written all over it that's those are the cases that tend to get reported the higher strange cases uh, the ones that are really slick and, and well done uh, those are the ones that are least uh, the least likely to be reported. Yeah, because they're just so strange and and uh, inexplicable, I guess. Uh, somebody um, mentioned to me once they they said, "Well, why not just go to slaughterhouses and pick up all those all those uh, um, all the organs and that from the slaughterhouses like medical companies do?" Yeah, yeah. Or why not raise your own cattle on your own land? Well, they the government does do that. They do. They do raise cattle on leased land. They do buy buy cattle. So um, you know, the, the 
you know, there was a big expose. Uh, the EPA was raising cattle in the San Luis Valley downstream from a Superfund site that had heavy metals in the Alamosa River upstream, 17 miles upstream. And uh, they were raising sheep and other um, grazing animals uh, for 90 days and then taking them and, and uh, you know, killing them and then uh, analyzing their, their tissues. And, and they found, uh, you know, three to 600 times the amount of heavy metals in the uh, in these animals, and when Brian Rimmer, the scientist who was in charge of of raising the raising the animals, he said, "Well, well, you know, when do you want me to release the press release to warn, you know, other ranchers in the area that they shouldn't be eating these animals because they have toxic levels of heavy metals?" And he was forbidden to uh, release the information, and he 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 was furious. He quit the EPA. He did a, a huge uh, you know whistleblower article with westward magazine in denver and uh during that time period that summer and fall in spring summer and fall i had seven oh you got cut off i'm here can you hear me yeah yeah you said you said during the spring summer and fall i had seven and then you got cut off okay yeah during the spring summer and fall while the epa was raising uh these grazing animals you know to then mutilate them and test their organs i had seven uh, mutilation cases right along the Alamosa River and canals leading away from the Alamosa River because that river feeds all sorts of irrigation canals uh, on the uh, west side of the of the central part of the San Luis Valley. And that's where my seven cases <laughs> during that time period, they all happened right there. Yeah. Well, see, my point was in asking that question, why go to the trouble of doing something you might get caught at when you can just go down to the slaughterhouse and, and get this stuff too? Because it's the place in the environment that the animals are located. They don't know where the animals came from when they go to the slaughterhouse? Yeah, exactly. Okay. It, well, when they go to the slaughterhouse, they're generally raised in these huge, you know, 100,000 animals are all, you know, up to their knees in feces and feces and, and the cow dung. Right. Uh, these big feedlots. Oh, okay. So the, the, the way that the... the, the... Where an independent rancher like this that's having problems, they don't they don't sell the cattle to a slaughterhouse. They they do it themselves. I don't don't they sell it? They take them to to sale to sale barns and stuff. Sure. Okay, but there's but there's but they they don't track where the cattle came from before they go and get slaughtered. They don't say this is from this ranch or wherever. Um. Yeah. There's yeah. They have ear tags. There's there's um. Uh, you know. They do. I mean, is there a way to tell if you just go into the slaughterhouse and say, "Look, I want the liver from this cat from this herd, and I want a I want a heart from this herd, and I want the sex organs from this herd." You wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, without raising uh, without raising suspicion, no. No, it, it would be uh, pretty apparent that something weird was going on if you were in in there asking for specific organs from specific cattle. Okay, that would, so that would be but, raising alarm bells all okay. over. It's so nobody does to, that. Like drug companies not, don't do that, or no, not not to my knowledge. No. Okay. Pretty much once once they're sold and they go into the food chain, they're put in with a hundred thousand other cattle. They're fattened up in three four months. Uh, they put four hundred pounds on them by force feeding them grain, which are not you know their the metabolisms aren't designed to to process grain. That's why the grain just turns into pure fat in the meat. Yeah, and they pump them full of of antibiotics to make sure they don't get sick in these filthy environments, and they pump them full of growth hormones to get them as fattened up and as large as they can, as quick as they can, with steroids and, and growth hormones. And then they 
they they send them through the assembly line. You know, the knocker has the uh, it's like a pneumatic drill. It stick it against their head and boom, it punches a hole in their brain and yeah. And then the sticker grabs them and all the names of uh, <laughs> slaughterhouse jobs are pretty graphic. <laughs> Yeah, uh, if, uh, Phil had a question from the Writer Mysterioso chat room. Um, it's it, it He's probably wondering about this. It's not really a question. He says, I've recently listened to some UFO expert, quote-unquote, talking about how this is being done for environmental monitoring purposes by a Kardashev three civilization. I have no idea what that is. Yeah. Um, well, that's just pure uh, sci-fi speculation. Um you know, maybe at the core there there could be some sort of high strange. And I, I've always said that there are high strange cases. You, you know, the cases that occurred back during you know the six, early sixteen hundreds. I mean, that wasn't the U.S. government monitoring the environment. Yeah. Uh, that there are cases that are high strange, that that, that appear to be paranormal uh, in nature, um, that have uh, almost supernatural uh, uh, physical evidence uh, left behind in some cases. And uh, these are very rare. And generally, as soon as those cases happen, you have a bunch of what appear to be human perpetrated cases that are around the same area. It's almost like they're alerted to be looking for something by the highest strange case. And then somebody comes in and starts and starts looking uh, as well. I mean, maybe even multiple groups come in and then they they even do red herring cases uh, to, you know, even put possibly put the blame for certain cases on onto another group they mimic their methodology and how they cut the animals the the types of uh, evidence that's left behind uh it's very complicated i mean there's evidence that the big ranchers you know large ranching operations have used the mutilation uh terrorism tactic to drive small ranchers out of business if they won't sell their land or they won't uh it is a scooby-doo hypothesis yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got some real, really good cases that suggest that that's exactly what was going on. Who has been your favorite guest on um, on Paracast recently, or I guess, I don't know, maybe ever? Well, like- I, I always like it when you, you come on, Nick uh, comes on. Um, I've had um, a ton of fun when you guys were on. Um, Generally, it's it's the out of the box thinkers. Um, of course, it was a real thrill to have Jacques Vallée on. Um, John Alexander was fun, uh-huh. um, very provocative. He's a great guy to uh, to bounce things off of. Um, Gary Lockwood, uh, who we just had on recently, who's a, an expert in in the occult and in how it's permeated through the music business and Lockman, rock- you mean? Yeah, Gary Lockman. Oh, okay. You said Lockwood. Gary Valentine, as he yeah. was known as the original bass player for Blondie. Yes, exactly. That, that, that was a, a really fun show. I had a great time with him. I mean, I've, I've actually kind of, we've sort of compared notes. We were both hanging out in New York in the same clubs at the same time uh, back in the in the early 80s and stuff. So um, it's generally the thinkers, the people that look at uh, subject matters from new and different ways with fresh perspectives. Uh, people who actually do read the books, who do um, make it a point to become um, well-rounded and knowledgeable about about these subjects. Um, I couldn't really, you know, you know, you're you're one of my all-time favorite guests. Uh, when Paul was on, we had a great time when Paul 
Yeah, that was just recently, right? Yeah, we had a great time with Paul. Chris uh, Rakowski is another one. He's a a brilliant guy, uh, very grounded. I was on with him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So these are the kinds of people that I have the most fun with, the people that make me think, that ask, uh, that that come up with, 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 information insights perspectives that that uh make me scratch my head and go wow and you know i <laughs> i've never thought about that or i've never looked at it that way you know it's the people right. that are intellectually stimulating it i have the most fun with oh okay a car steve found it a kardashev three civilization is one that is using the power of an entire galaxy to do stuff Meaning it's a it's an idea about a an extraterrestrial civilization and the and the uh, level of uh, uh, development right. they've, they've advanced to. Um, so right, it's right. In the, yeah. In the uh, what is it? The Michio Kaku is is level three, I think, or level four civilization. Well, again, uh, you know, until until we we're extrapolating our own motivations and experience onto something we have no idea about. Well, that's, yeah, number one. And number two, until we can find slam dunk physical evidence that cannot be explained by anything on this planet, until we come to that point, we should exhaust all mundane explanations until and kind of do an Occam's razor. We don't need to make things more complicated. Uh, you know, these these cases are, are, can be done by a skilled by a skilled uh, a person skilled with a knife and knowing, you know, who knows what they're doing. Some of the cases are, are very, very difficult to duplicate, mm-hmm. but they can be du- they can be done by someone uh, proficient, a veterinary pathologist, an animal surgeon. Okay. Yeah, I talked to somebody that worked at Skinwalker years ago, and I said, "Well, ha- any of these things you've seen, is there any way that they could have been done? Uh, are there any of them that would have been impossible to do by humans?" And he said, "Nope." There are none. Exactly. I said, but you have to be, he said, but you have to be really good at it, know exactly what you're doing, cut in all the right places, and do it quickly and in the dark. Right. <laughs> so. Exactly. And, and that's, that's, not, that's not easy to do. I mean, in, in, in Stock in the Herd, there's a, a classic case in 1980 in Iowa where a, 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 a calf was brought into the you know, state veterinary college. You know, one of the, the guys that wrote the textbook on, on uh, you know, bovine surgery popped a, you know, a freshly killed calf down next to the calf that was brought in and was able to duplicate everything that was done on the, the high strange case. But he said whoever it was that, that was able to excise that tongue and get those glands out, they're as good a surgeon as me, and I'm one of the best. Yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> exactly. So it, it's not out of the realm of possibility for humans no. to be doing it. It's just it just takes incredible amounts of skill, money, uh, all that. Right. Why keep and doing all it? Stuff about laser cuts and yeah. cookie cutter incisions. That's all. It's all bogus. There were only two cases that had cookie cutter incisions. And the way Linda and other people talk, every case has serrated edges. Uh, it's just, it's by far the exception, not the norm. And, hmm. and these c- cases are not drained of blood. I don't know how many times I've, I've gone to the ranch and no, it, it, the, all the blood's in the bottom of the body cavity here. Help me turn it over. Yeah. And we turn this thing over and whoosh, you know, sure. It's, it's, it's lost a lot of the liquid is, has, you know, has evaporated and it's more of a gooey mess. It's more, you know, constituent elements of, of red blood cells and, and um, 
you know, a lot of the serum is gone. Let's put it that way. But but it's all there. It's only when you cut into the meat and the meat is gray or just slightly pink. That's when you know it's been drained. And I have had cases like that. But out of 200 cases, there's only been a handful. Hmm. Well, what's what's wrong with most of them? They just have things cut out and weird things have been done in the area? Or, yeah. Or they've been left in a weird place, like in a tree or whatever? No, I've never been able to prove a single case that has been left in a tree. I've heard apocryphal stories. Okay. I've talked to people that said, well, back in the 70s, we did have one in a tree. But I've never seen slam dunk evidence that any cases have been found of cattle have been found in a tree. Now, I did have a javelina that was mutilated and found in a tree. And there are no javelinas anywhere in Colorado. Javelinas <laughs> <laughs> are four hundred some odd miles yeah, away. Yeah, right, right. In 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 we had a baby uh, yak Arizona, we found in a tree. A what? A baby yak. <laughs> you found where? There's a yak ranch in the San Luis Valley, and one of the babies disappeared. They found it mutilated up in a tree. Oh, <laughs> insane! I had a deer that was found in a tree mutilated. A what? A deer. A deer. Okay. It had a hole between its uh, tear duct through its septum, perfect hole that you could see light through, and the rear end was cored out. Yeah, I've I had a, like an overarching question, and I totally forgot what it was. And we've got eight minutes left. Who's coming up? Uh, so who who do you want to interview that you haven't yet? Who would I like to interview? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, Michio Kaku. Uh, uh, I'd love to uh, interview uh, Paul Radin. Um, Dean I'd Radin? love to get or Dean Radin rather Paul Radin. <laughs> I'd love to inter- inter- uh, interview Paul Radin too. Is he the guy uh, from the? Is that the character from the tw- from the Twilight Zone uh, episode? No, he wrote the book The Trickster. Okay, there was a guy named Radin in a Twilight Zone episode. Actually, yeah, yeah, Dean Radin. I'd love to interview. Um, I'd love to get uh, Michael Shermer on and Seth uh, Shostek and oh, yeah. Jim on some of the skeptics, Robert Schaefer. Yeah, uh, I'd love to get those guys on and and uh, chew on them a little bit, like a like a pit bull with a you know a chewy toy. Yeah, apparently Schaefer was on um, Kevin Randall's show recently, and he was for some of the stuff they talked about, he was rather unprepared. Yeah, so it'd, it'd be interesting to hear, you know, because he's got. I was talking to a friend about this today. You can talk to a, a, like a rabid skeptic like that, and you and you know you, you could they you you could have absolute you know negative opinion and discuss for them, but every once in a while they're right, so it, you listen to them. You know, yeah, of course, yeah, and anybody who's involved in any of these subject matters uh, should always be aware of what the skeptics say and what their arguments are. Yeah. I think it's important. Uh, you know, there's 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 a lot of people that I'd love to uh, to interview. The guys, um, I'd love to get some of the guys from uh, from Goddard on, and and uh, Carl Sagan's widow and Durian. Uh, uh, yeah. I'd love to get her on Elon Musk, uh, people like that. Uh, Tom DeLong. I'd love to carve that uh, grandstanding. Uh, <laughs> Get him on. Yeah, I'm still waiting for Robbie Graham's third part of the DeLong Delusion uh, uh, series that he's doing. Right. <laughs> the funny yeah. thing is, I, you know, um, in May, I think, or April, when I was on Coast to Coast, um, 
uh, with Knapp, he said, well, what do you think of DeLong? And I said, I think he's being played just like everybody else in the entire history of this. And he's, he's, and, um, Knapp said he wasn't sure. I was like, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's got all the earmarks and he's still interested yeah, yeah, in that. Yeah, the so. Right. The timing's right. Cause we haven't had somebody played in a while. And so this would be uh, the, 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 in terms of the timing of it is, yeah. is good. And it's not. And people say, "Oh, it's going to make UFOs, you know, uh, UFO research look bad." UFO research look bad already. That that's it not the point. Make it worse. Yeah, you can't make it, it look worse. The point is the the point. There's many things going on there. I think one of them, obviously, people have said, make the government look good, make them look like the good guys again, especially the um, uh, the intelligence agencies and some parts of the military. And two, who knows what? I mean, there's there's you know. Uh, it's usually uh, one to get information from somewhere for someone, two to pass information to somewhere or, or between people, or three to create an illusion that you get whoever your enemies are to react to. Yeah, and those are yeah, just some Walter of the reasons. Loved, Walter loved pointing that one out because that's the counterintelligence yes uh, angle. Um, somebody else, I, I'd uh, I'd love to interview John Podesta. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. To get him on and get a, a, a political uh, perspective. You may have to wait a couple of years while that all dies down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. When nobody's heard of him for a while, maybe he'll come on. I don't know. Just start asking him now. See what happens. Just wear him down. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a bunch of people I'd love to uh, to get on. Um, you know, I like to keep it, uh, keep it fresh. Um, you know, some of the haunted site uh, folks... Um, uh, acoustic experts, uh, people who've you know looked into uh, EVP research, um, you know some of the uh, some of the acoustic experts uh, that I've I've heard about, um, uh, you know mostly Europeans, but uh, it'd be great to get uh, some of their you know their perspectives uh, on haunted site research and stuff. Yeah, you know my my interests are varied. I, I'm not just uh, in, into cows or things that go bump in the night uh, in the night sky. I, <laughs> I'm I really think that um, you know location specific uh, site research, crypto research uh, is probably where we're going to have our 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 first major breakthroughs. I think will be um, in places that that have the uh, more of a chance of re- repeatability. And so um, I'd like to put a little bit more emphasis on on those areas uh, on the, on the Paracast. Um, you know, I'm I'm trying, but getting Gene, you know, Gene is is really old school, and it's kind of tough to get him motivated sometimes. So yeah, well, you know, cut in and ask the questions you want to ask. So yeah, that's yeah. that's what I did. He's uh, at first when I was co-hosting for a while, he wouldn't let me say anything. Then I think he realized, and now I, I kind of cut in every once in a while and do ask questions when I sometimes when I co-host, and he seems fine with that now. So I guess that's a step. Yeah, I just write in the little uh, chat window. Me. <laughs> <laughs> me, my turn. Uh, are you doing are you doing anything else that people would want to know about besides um, co-hosting still on uh, uh, Paracast? Well, I'm working on the follow-up book to Stalking the Herd. Oh, uh, excellent! Yeah, the Stalking the Herd is 600 pages of of data. Yeah, and uh, you know, Mute Speak <laughs> is going to be analyzing all that data, and we're throwing it against David Perkins and I are throwing it against the wall and and seeing what's sticking. And uh, you know, we're we're crunching some numbers and. 
you know, we're we're you know really making a concerted effort to uh, get to the bottom of the the width and breadth and extent of the South American way, for instance. Uh, Fourteen years of of cases down there, how they differ from the U.S. cases, you know, and and the impact of these things subtly on the culture, um, I think, is very important, yeah. along with the science and and uh, you know possible culpable agendas and that sort of thing. But it's the impact of these things on on uh, rural communities that I think is as important, if not more important, than the actual events themselves. So we're having fun. I'm I'm doing uh you know my every couple months I'm doing a trip to uh, New Mexico and we've been. Uh, We've already uh, probably recorded, oh, I don't know, the transcripts about four inches high now, a stack of uh, transcripts about four or five inches high. So we've we've done many, uh, many, many, many hours of uh, of uh, analytical work. And um, what, 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 what are you doing recording in New Mexico? Uh, with David Perkins, I go over there and we, oh, okay. uh, we start kicking around uh, some of these some of these uh, ideas and themes and stuff and then uh, get them transcribed. Yeah, I asked him if he would be on the show, and he goes, "Yeah, let's talk about it in the new year." So uh, after the after um, Sunday, I'm going to start bugging him. He's he's a he's a, he's one of my favorite. He would be my one of my favorite guests. I mean, the guy's off the charts, brilliant, really insightful, um, uh, super super brilliant, uh, very creative. Oh shit! Now very you're going to have him on guys. before me. <laughs> huh? I said, "Oh shit!" Now you're going to have him on before me. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'll, I'll I'll let you have him. Oh, okay. I got to yeah. bug him again. He's, he's been on. He's been on the Paracast a couple times. Oh, he has he. He's okay. Really tough to get. Okay, because I've I've never had him on. I in fact I just recently he bugged oh, he'd me. Love to do your show. He's told me that. Okay, he bugged me on Facebook and he said, "Glad we finally got in touch." And you know, I've read your stuff, and I told him I've read your stuff way back in like the early '90s. So yeah, exactly. So yeah, I'd love to have him on. The guest gets to pick the outro music. <laughs> okay, what are my choices? No, no, anything you want. I'll just look it up on on um, YouTube. Um. Okay. How about? Um, okay. Nevermore. Afrocount Sound System. <laughs> I was just listening to it actually earlier. Um, I got I got my album finally from Real World Records. I ordered it in August and I finally got it. <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks so much, Chris. I think you. Yeah. I, I think you. I don't know if you have the record for being on the show, but you're pretty damn close. Oh, did you notice? It's my favorite show to do, Greg. Thank you. You you notice? You notice? Show to be a guest. Say that again. My favorite show to be a guest on. Um, You're one of my favorite guests, and you um, did you notice that recently? I've I finally post reposted an interview from ten years ago that we did the very first time I was on the show back in 2006. Was that the first time? Really? That was my first time. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, because I was after Peter Jordan. You just had Peter Jordan on just uh, a couple shows before me. Oh, okay. I, I've I had Peter. I was on Peter, Peter Jordan came on um, Robert Larson's show. I don't know if he was ever on my show, but I did post the interview because do you yeah, know whatever happened? Yeah, I I know we're over time. Whatever happened to Peter Jordan? Did he because he just disappeared off my? He, yeah, he, he fell off. He fell off the map. I have no idea. I tried to find him and I couldn't find him. Well, the thing was, we did the interview. And I said, God, we, you know, because we started going into octopus stuff, you know, the Ken Thomas's book and a right. uh, lot of other things that he said were, you know, very germane to the cattle mutilation mystery. And he, I said, we got off the phone, we finished the interview, he said, we hardly got even 
we barely scratched the surface. Do you want to do another show? He goes, yeah, sure. Let's do it in a couple of weeks. Three days before we had set up the, the thing, he said, I'm not going to do the show. I'm not going to do this anymore. It's, I'm getting really freaked out by it, by it, and that's it. And he never responded to me ever again. Right, right. It was right after that that you had me on the on the show. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I don't know. I, we never found out what happened to Peter Jordan. I mean, he, I don't think he disappeared off the face of the earth. He's still around, but. He's in New Jersey somewhere, last I heard. Really bright guy. Yeah. Real, real good uh, creative thinker. Yes, exactly. Um, and if you go if you go down the list on Radio Mysterioso, you can find the interview with him that we recorded. Nevermore by Afrocelt Sound System for you. Very good. Thanks, man. Okay, thanks, Chris. 